0: Where we talk about things With one super special guest every week Just sit back, relax, and hear us speak On This Is Happening, the podcast Hello everyone, welcome back to This Is Happening This is Nathan Strifle
1: And Eric Morris
0: And today we are joined by the vivacious, wonderful, (laughs) fabulous, talented, intelligent, enthusiastic Michael Varadhi Am I pronouncing your last name correctly? Yes, I was Okay, cool. I just wanted to make sure. <laughs> uh, Michael is a writer for many things. Publications. Um, you've done some movies, horror films. Yes. Uh, sci-fi and Lifetime?
2: Sci-fi, Lifetime, Hallmark, Ion... Uh, yeah, so I run the gamut. I always say I've, uh, I, wrote, I write horror movies and TV movies. I've done the movies that your brother likes and the movies that your mom loves. That's how I always <laughs> to <break> a tie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that sounds accurate.
1: And also, um, we are doing another deep dive into the web series. I'm fine. Oh, that's right. Yes, <laughs> because we have had yes, yes. Brandon Kirby on, and we have had Perry Powell on, and yes. now we have. Season two same. associate producer, yes, Michael Varadi. and season <laughs> one associate producer
2: No, I came in on season two to uh, make it better. Well, I would. I, I love <laughs> the first season. It was actually because I was. Uh, I love the first season. A, two, a actually, big really. fan of the show and a friend of Brandon's. <coughs> that when he was putting together season two, I, I wanted to get involved. Uh, and we are working on season three right now, Amazing. of which I will if, be returning. If you didn't listen
0: to the previous uh, episodes. Uh, there's a gay web series on Deku called I'm Fine. A previous guest named Brandon Kirby who directed it, and a previous guest named Perry Powell was the main star, and now we have a little bit of a trifecta situation. And in a, a couple, couple in. weeks,
1: we're going to be interviewing the craft services person. <laughs> and, we just had, <laughs> we had to be completist about yeah. everyone. <laughs> but also Nathan was on
0: there. I was on it. I... I, I brief little appearances on it so so you're on pre-production for season three right now
2: yeah we're on pre-production for season three now i'm returning as uh, a full producer this season and uh i'm sure so is that one up an associate
0: producer it is yes yes right. yeah nice and,
2: and i think that like it wouldn't be talking out of turn uh to say that i'm also writing a couple episodes this year so oh my god cool
0: uh, so Brandon's kind of like um Throwing the, the writing out a little bit. He's show running, yeah.
1: He's, he's leading the charge. Is it so. still? Did he write every episode of seasons one and two?
2: Mm. Uh, I think in season two, he... He's uh, a wrote, writer. Well, no, he, he primarily <laughs> he wrote, but I think there were a couple episodes that he did do some collaborative writing, if I'm not mistaken. For sure, yeah. yeah.
0: I mean, when you kind of get a little bit farther in, I think that helps, and it makes maybe it makes it a little easier on his... And we're director. joined by birds. Today. Oh my god, the birds around my house, you guys, <laughs> <laughs> seriously, they Super are never loud. Birds. They, it's honestly
1: twenty four hours a day. They I think feel like it's they like they think it's stop. morning and it's not. <laughs> it's actually evening. I better. mean,
2: I think it's adding some ambiance, but I can see how at four in the morning it might not be as exciting. This, no, yeah, uh, they as they're trying to fall asleep. I mean,
1: it's fine,
0: but I record sketches and stuff all the time, too, so I'm very aware of the noise <laughs> constantly around my house, and I'm like, these damn birds. Which
2: well, just sounds like we're in a menagerie. It's yeah,
0: like <laughs> yes. I'm just going to start setting everything I do in menageries. There you go. In problem.
1: addition to all that, <laughs> um, Michael hosts his own podcast called Dead for Filth. Yes. Who was, and you've, you've actually, well, I, I know a bunch of your guests, so I, I, I listened to a little bit. Of a guest that we had on David Delval.
2: Oh I loved David. Oh you had David on? Yeah. yeah.
1: Amazing. And your episode with David Delval was far more sober than ours. We had a very drunken <laughs> evening with him. Yeah, ours was colored and with rose. descended for sure. into <laughs> drunkenness. But you and he seem to be drinking coffee and on your best behavior and...
2: Well, as, as best behavior as David can be. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, David, uh, D- David and I both are, uh, you know, fans of, of spooky things in horror movies. And he is, uh, as far as I'm concerned, one of the preeminent uh, horror historians out there. And he and I are actually about to do a film commentary together for uh, the Blu- Blu-ray release of The Killing of Sister George. Uh, oh, good. So that's coming up. You so. mentioned that that <laughs> yeah. was in the works. That was actually happening. Yeah, I him. think within the next week or so from this re- time of recording. So. Well, good. We'll Very tell good. him yeah, you say tell hello. For us, definitely.
1: Um, but yeah, he's a great rock on tour and a good guest on any podcast. Uh, I
2: like that he is truly a connection to old Hollywood and that he knew everyone and does impressions of them all. Apparently, yeah, that's what I learned on my episode. Oh, and yeah. a
0: gamma. Yeah, I was like. 40s, 50s, 60s,
1: 70s, 80s. I was like, I don't
0: know where I am.
1: And he gets super <laughs> esoteric with his references, but yes. but he did. You know, he is he is a connection. But also so hilarious
0: important. podcast to listen to. If you haven't listened to the David Dobell one, we're just plugging all of our. I love podcasts. That. <laughs> I love a good comedy. It's just you've, funny how many
1: connections there are in the city yeah. too. It's you, like, you know, no. I mean, I, I know Darren Stein yeah. and Jesse Merlin, and um, you know, you've had you've had some great fun, you know, with. With your guests. And even people like Jackie Beat. I'm not sure what the horror connection is there, but she must love horror
2: or something. Uh, well, Jackie Beat is actually uh, one of the world's most consummate uh, fans of the film Carrie. Uh, oh. To the degree mm. she's a very big collector of Carrie merchandise, does a Carrie room. She does, yeah. And um, oh, that's a scary room to go into. Yeah. I don't know <laughs> if I want to enter that. And uh, so, Dead for Filth is about the queer connection to the horror genre. And uh, as a writer of horror uh, and a queer person, I've always been interested in sort of that intersectionality because I sort of made the connection very early on. And each week, I have a guest where we talk about that relationship. And Carrie, over the course of Dead for Filth's 40-odd episodes, uh, has been one of the most referenced movies, because it's something that I think a lot of LGBTQ people can connect to, the idea of this otherness and outsider that's ostracized. Definitely. And a little bit of a revenge Yeah, in that kind of revenge fantasy. And um, Carrie had been so consistently mentioned uh, that... Jackie might be one of the first guests who actually kind of reached out to me, and she's like, "I got to be on your show because no one loves Carrie more than I do." And you know when she you, was listening, yeah, I guess so. But yeah, when that. Jackie beat comes a- calling, you have to. You You're have like, Well, let's please. do it." Yes, absolutely. <laughs> when you
0: when you say you had a connection early on to horror, what do you mean? Like you were just have you always been into kind of horror films and horror genre?
2: Yeah. So- I think that, like, I, I would say that when I was very little, I was scared of everything. And I think this is actually very true of a lot of people who end up in horror. It's sort of like uh, when you're a scaredy cat and you have this just, like, intense fear of, like, if the music would change to something suspenseful, I would run over and turn off the TV, much to, like, my parents', like, dismay. Because uh, they were usually watching whatever it was. Uh, but it's sort like, of like it's X Files. Yeah. <laughs> but you start. Almost in a way, fetishizing and obsessing over the thing that you're afraid of to the point that you become like, I want to know more, I want to get into this. And like at an early age, I read a lot of Stephen King, and uh, uh, there was this show that used to air on uh, the USA Network at the end of the 80s and the early 90s called USA Up All Night. And it was hosted by this uh, bubbly, blonde, bombshell show named Rhonda Shear. And I uh, <laughs> remember I was reading the TV Guide because uh, that's um, that, that's how we used to discover how movies were on TV. Uh, oh, totally. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, and TV USA Guide channel. <laughs> up all night was doing a double feature of Attack of the Killer Tomatoes and Return of the Killer Tomatoes. And I begged my mom. So let me stay up and watch it because for some reason it sounded like something that I needed to know.
0: Was this like an eleven o'clock hour show, like a
2: minute? Yeah, show? It, was, it was So, like, so yeah. this is after you had a fear of suspenseful music. You've yeah. You've
1: gotten you've gotten over that. And you, and a, a little bit. So but you're like There was still now.
2: sort of like the mystery of it all. Okay. How these, old are you? at that point maybe like eight or nine Uh, that is so young so you really got over the horror quickly yeah but like for the time that I was scared I was like really scared Uh, but you know what it was is it it felt forbidden Uh, and I I was my my parents were always very cool they never really censored stuff in that way and I begged my mom I'm like I want to stay up I want to watch this and she was just like yeah, that's okay, but I have to stay up and watch it with you just in case, you know, this, like, terrorizes you. And she promptly fell asleep 15 minutes into the movie. That's pretty <laughs> sweet. Yeah. But how USA Up All Night used to do it was they would show the two movies back-to-back, mm-hmm. and then they would just keep showing them back-to-back-to-back-to-back till morning. So I just, like, stayed up, like, all night. Like, by morning, I was like, if, oh, if there are movies like this Your in the world... Your entire body like, was yeah, red like a I, tomato. I, you you were we like, watched them over, I am and, movie over and over to and over again? Oh I did. God. Probably till, like, 3 or 4 in the morning, and I was just like, oh my god, because... It was sort of like an epiphany that there is a whole world of art and films uh, Mm -hmm. that's not what they're showing at the theater, and there's this idea that, uh, especially before the internet, it was like there are movies out there that are weird and strange and, and campy. Yeah, and campy, and so like against like what you know, the other moms in school were letting their kids watch that I was just like, I suddenly became obsessed. And you would go to the video store and I would kind of like, uh, objectify the boxes in the horror section because I always had the best art. And I was like, I want to know everything about this. <laughs> uh, and so early on I got really into it and I always loved the idea of cult cinema and horror cinema. Of course, Rocky Horror was an early introduction mm, because mm. I loved the idea of not just, um, watching a movie, but sort of worshipping a movie. There was a communal experience that was... was, uh, Well, and that's so gay. It it is.
1: I mean, Rocky Horror is just like, you know... When you're young and you see that, you're like,
2: what is this? Yeah, what is
1: going on here? It's so crazy. And
2: when I discovered the subculture around it, I think that was probably the early connection to the idea that people find themselves in film and they uh, find solace in it. And uh I always was interested in horror. Uh I always was interested in writing. I used to I was I wrote in high school. Uh I and I have a master's degree in English cuz I took my love of literature to to college. The degree. Yeah, but I always <laughs> no, no,
0: no, I have a <laughs> master's too. So I, I get what you're saying. Um totally. Yeah, 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 for sure.
2: But at one point, you know, once I kind of like like came to terms with my own uh, identity as a gay person, I realized that maybe there was a connection there and uh I always became fascinated that there was a, this idea of like maybe there was a queerness to horror. And then once I started making horror movies and I started encountering other people, there was this sort of this revelation that there are a lot of gay people and queer people and lesbians and trans people and you know people across all, all spectrums that found themselves in this genre like don mancini who created chucky gay jeffrey reddick who created final destination gay guinevere turner who wrote the screenplay for american psycho lesbian that movie could only have been made by women because it highlights misogyny and no man would ever get i mean there's so much queerness to it there has there had to be something so i started writing about it uh some of the things that i wrote got picked up uh some are being taught in college classrooms which is bizarre to me crazy um wait I, where are you from Uh, Well, I was born in New Mexico, and I've lived all over. I was in Pittsburgh before here. Um,
0: And you went to high school in New Mexico? In Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania. Gotcha. So you moved with your family to Pennsylvania.
2: Yeah. Uh, And no, so that was it. And then um, I've just been writing and talking about it and speaking on it and uh, kind of beating the drum. And about six or seven years ago, San Diego Comic-Con asked me to start hosting the queer horror panel that they do every year. And I've had amazing people like Brian Fuller has been on... Uh, that panel Christopher Rice uh, the guys who created the final girls Jess, uh, Mark Patton who was in Nightmare on Elm Street too, and the thing that like kept happening every year was I have seven people for one hour a year and you barely scratch the surface so when I met with Reverie that's where Dead for Filth came from. I, I thought, you know, what if instead of an hour a year with seven people, I have an hour a week with one person, and that's where Dead for Filth came from. So Amazing. And you can
0: just deep dive into each person. Yeah.
2: And,
1: and there are, you know, I, I think there, there, there are a lot of horror fans, you know, that are, that are gay. And there was that gay horror movie that they made here in L.A. not long ago. What was it called? Like, I'm... You're Killing me, or something like that. Yeah, I was actually
2: on the set of that movie briefly. Oh, yeah, because yeah, uh, Drew Drogi's in that. Mm-hmm. Um, it was written by Jeffrey Self, uh, directed by Jim Hansen. Oh, that's right,
1: Jim Hansen, who is another friend of mine. So, yeah, I knew I knew I knew people on that, but that that kind of expressly gets at that intersection between gay and horror and right. you know, like attractive people being killed when they're about to have sex or. Just, or also <laughs> the, the kind of intersection between, you know, how gay sex can kill you, you know? Right. I don't know. I mean, like, that, there is a little bit of that.
2: Well, that's interesting because... Because uh, that
1: guy's
0: like a serial killer. Well, there's they, like a lot of gay villains in cinema. They're...
2: Yeah, yeah we we have frequently been treated as the bad guy a lot yeah. through, through the years i think that's finally starting to change but it's interesting the reference of that if you have sex you die like rule of horror movies and you know and they they talk about that and scream but we don't really see a rise of that in horror cinema until the 80s before that there was a, like a, kind of a fluid sexuality like if you look at the 70s horror movies especially from europe everyone's just banging everyone else and it's just like oh it's part of the landscape vampires uh, Ooh, and, I like that. And then the 80s happen, and all of a sudden, it's like Friday the 13th, and if you have sex, you die. And although it's never expressly stated, it's literally running parallel to the AIDS crisis. I mean, that's and what anomaly. I remember thinking when I, you know, because I, I was, you know, like 11, 12,
1: when I first started reading about, you know, HIV AIDS. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I started to think, and I was, you know, kind of coming to the realization, like, oh, I'm attracted to to guys. So th- that means that sex can kill me. You know, it just really? and it was traumatizing. You know, it just it like put me off sex for a really long time kind of cuz I was just like, "Ugh, no."
2: It is traumatizing. I mean, and I we see how uh, an entire generation has PTSD still. Like I mean, that's there is it's it's a different kind of PTSD, but it is that there's a shell shock from mm-hmm. Anyone who survived the AIDS crisis—that I don't yeah. think that uh, the LGBTQ community will really ever recover from.
1: Uh, I mean, it's true. I, you know, I had experiences in the in the '90s where I would learn that someone that I had been seeing for a while, sleeping with, whatever, you know, had died and never told me they were HIV positive. You know, and just that was kind of traumatizing. Hmm. You know.
0: Yeah, that sounds very traumatizing. I kind of didn't really grow up till after it, but yeah, definitely uh, still affects the community. Obviously, It sure, yeah. still affects all of us. And
1: well, it does, but it's now now there's treatments and there's preps. It's changing. But I remember growing up very fearful.
0: Yeah, very fearful. And part of why I think I was very fearful of sex and very you know conservative with my sex because they they drill it or they when i was in high school and junior high they just like drilled it into you, like use everything you're gonna catch everything it, right. it was like dare <laughs> but with sex and not with drugs
2: what was really the boogeyman of the gay community for the longest time uh and you know not to use a horror term but it is like there's, there's a specter that haunted us and i think it, it still does to a degree uh
1: I hadn't made that connection, like you said, though, to like the the horror movies of the 80s and how sex can kill, like whether it's like a sleepaway camp movie or Mm -hmm. just whatever, um, with young kids like kind of about to do it. And then, you know, uh, Michael Myers or whoever comes and kills them. I never associated that with the AIDS crisis, but I guess, you know, you can.
2: I think the read is definitely there. What's interesting, too, is, like, there's a queerness to those movies, even in their conservative nature, because while you still have the don't-have-sex-or-you'll-die thing, which feels like a very Reagan message, like, listen up, gays. Yeah. But also, on the same token, if if you look at something (laughs) like the Friday the 13th movies it's always the tomboy or the outsider who is the hero. She's the girl we're rooting for. Like she's mm. always kind of like the antithesis of the group. And who are the people that get killed? It's the kids who would have picked on the gay kid. It's the, the most. Yeah, young, the, the, jock popular and the yeah. So in a way it's like, also, very cathartic to go to those movies. You're like, that guy called me a fag in high school, but like now he's getting like beat to death in a sleeping bag by Jason. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: maybe there's also a bunch of nerds who grew up to be writers, and they were like, I'm gonna yeah, my, my high school <laughs> <laughs> fantasies into. And this there's break. there's <laughs> a
1: lot of kind of homoeroticism in the like um, the Nightmare on Elm Street. Movies, oh yeah, yeah, right.
2: Nightmare on Elm Street Part Two is like inarguably the gayest movie of all time <laughs> you know i don't think
0: i've ever seen nightmare i'm pretty Street sure two. i haven't seen i've seen true. maybe the first one but i don't think i've seen the rest is it worth watching the series i
2: mean if you watch it you're gonna be flabbergasted just like how like overtly homoerotic it is and the thing is is the lead actor is a gay man uh there were a lot of gay people who worked on it and it just shows like how awareness shifts over time we can sit and watch it now and be like oh my god this movie's gay but when it played in the middle of the kind in 1985, where people just weren't talking Everybody about gay was people, to people it. were just like, "What's this biker bar he's going to?" And it's like <laughs> clearly like a leather bar where there's like fisting daddies in the background, and you're just like, "What is going on?" a <laughs> bar, too. And like he's just got like it, there's a whole scene where he's possessed, where he's like, "He's inside me, like super gay," and you're like, "Why is no one seeing?" But it is it's a bit like uh, it's almost cliche amongst like circles of, of uh, queer scholars who write about. To talk about that movie because it's just like so. There are actually gay horror movies that are not as gay as Nightmare on Elm Street too because they just it's like <laughs> it's like bleeding out of every frame. Like everything <laughs> about it is just. He has a girlfriend, but, like, when shit goes down, he, like, runs to his best friend's bedroom instead, and you're just like, (laughs) why? Do you talk about that film on your podcast a lot, or... um... It comes up a lot, although it's interesting, because my very first episode uh, was with Jeffrey Reddick, who created Final Destination, and Jeffrey is such a big Nightmare on Elm Street fan, Uh, and, you know, he kind of set the mode for how a lot of the interviews on the show went. And he just talked about like what was so important to him growing up as a biracial gay guy in Kentucky and like how he had latched onto the Nightmare on Elm Street movies as a little kid and how that motivated him to create. And we just fell right into talking about Nightmare on Elm Street too. And like when you have the creator of Final Destination on and he's giving you like the 101 on how gay this movie is everybody else who comes on after unless it's one of the Nightmare on Elm Street t- people really can't say anything about it because he kind of like turned it out so, yeah like, exactly. uh, he, he set the you, standard yeah, for the yeah, uh, for yeah, the, yeah, for yeah the, he definitely the like,
0: takedown on Nightmare on Elm Street too. yeah
2: but it does pop up from time to time because so many people will reference it and it, it, there is a homoeroticism that just runs so rampant through 80s horror in You've general you got to have Robert England though I would love to have Robert England on. Uh, what I love about Robert England, and I've said this in many interviews over the years, and he either probably would find... If he knows about it, he either really likes it or really doesn't. But I always say uh, that one of my favorite drag queens is Freddy Krueger. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because to me, Freddy Krueger is truly a drag persona. It's somebody that he, like, you, could, you can... He wears that character so well in a 360 way that you believe, like, in the 80s when Freddy would be on a talk show. He was Freddy Krueger. He had that theatrical way of walking. Uh, I did an interview with um, Mike.com back when The Babadook came out, and they were asking about other queer villains, and I said, well, Freddy Krueger is like the Ethel Merman of 80s horror, and no one ever wants to talk about it, but he's just, like, big. He's so huge. Like, everything about that character is just drag. Maybe not drag queen, but he is a drag monster, and I love love that, the idea that he's just theatrical, because... We don't get characters like that anymore. Elvira, Pee Wee Herman, Freddy Krueger. That's like, you know. For sure, you don't yeah. get that
1: over-the-topness. No. And then you also had um, the Boulay Brothers on, and they created *Dracula*, which yes. is another good kind of, um, you know, intersection of, of horror, gay guy, and, specific and drag guy. and mm-hmm. horror and.
2: Yeah, I love the Boulets. I love what they're doing. Uh, I I love Dracula. I think the because they get it. I mean, they they inherently get like everything that we're talking about. There is a cross section of otherness and the worlds of uh, filth, horror, glamour. You know, they all um, can exist in the same space, and I think that there's something really cool about that. And they. Um, they saw it in a way different than like a horror writer or a filmmaker would. They, they mm-hmm. thought, you know, people want to express themselves through this. Yeah. Why don't we give them a space to do it? And their club nights are so good because of that. Cause it is like a fan. The first boule event I ever went to was the Dragula party before Dragula was a show. And I remember it was like, July and I walked in and these two boys in like black shirts with like fangs and blood dripping down their mouth were just like hey and I'm like oh my god <laughs> oh my <laughs> I, I love, love like, this I place. Yeah, place. place that was at Faultline when they were yeah, there. totally oh, like, we were going there back then I we, first
0: yeah.
1: saw them do events when they were at Miss Kitty's in um, New York? No it oh. was here um, at Dragonfly mm. it was I like, saw them at Dragonfly yeah for sure um like Miss Kitty was kind of like, and then Miss Kitty like moved away. Right. Is Miss they, Kitty a drag queen? No. What's Miss, what's Miss, Miss, Miss Kitty, Kitty was an actual woman who was like the club promoter. Gotcha. For the it was like a fetish. It wasn't it wasn't horror, but it was a fetish party where they had like, you know, performance art and for, drag queens and performance and artists and like and d- kind of demonstrations. And yeah, like all that. of that totally. was a lot of fun, and. Then she moved away for some family reason, and they continued to pretend that it. That she was around, uh, but they were like, you know, she's shy and she's not, you know, she's <laughs> she's and so then they took over like hosting and then it became the their events and then, they, and then they
2: well it was yeah. always so it was always the, the Boulay brothers present but they were never actually out like they into so, because Miss Ke- Miss Kitty was the hostess yeah and when she uh, she left they already did like so much to pr- promote the show they
0: were like we ain't letting this go down with the shed well, we,
2: that's, right, that's right put on your dress let's went, get out I there I remember
1: like in some some drunken night, like talking to her and them about that transition and and how like they really were behind it, you know, and she was kind of like the front person, and then she went away, and they just continued to do it. And then, well, yeah, good thing they do because they do a great job. They're amazing. They yeah, too. I mean, they, they, I think they've really kind of demonstrated what you know how popular that nexus is. How mm-hmm. many you know gay people are horror fans and are you know into that whole spectacle and it you know some people mix it into their drag like sharon needles or you know whomever and all the dragula you know right queens when you started you said you were
0: writing from like an early age were you writing horror or were you writing fiction even or what was kind of like yeah. That progression. Um,
2: I definitely always wrote stories that would be considered genre, I suspect. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I always liked a spooky story. The thing is, is I am a big fan um, of stories that veer into heavy atmosphere. Uh, I... I like horror of all kinds, but, like, I'm not necessarily, like, let's just, you know, do gore for gore's sake. I was, like, more of a... Yeah, totally. uh, More of an others fan than, like, Saw. But, uh... Absolutely.
0: uh, I love movies like that. I love something that has, like, a really good just kind of vibe to it. like thrillers, Psychological thrillers. Yeah, for sure.
2: But I definitely, like, always really liked uh, telling stories that, like, affected that kind of vibe. And I would write, like, small stories when I was a teenager and then when I was in college uh, as... I I guess that, like, horror has always been sort of considered a bad word to, you know, the artistic elite, which is its own discussion. Uh, And so when I was in school and studying literature and also studying films, I think I I thought it was like, oh, I'm going to do maybe, like, Robert Altman kind of stories where everyone's, like, contemplative and sits around and, like, talks. And that's what happens. (laughs) Uh, And, uh, you know... Or was
0: it always for film and Screenwriting, or...?
2: Well, I started with prose, uh, and I I definitely thought that I probably was going to be more of sort of what David DelVal does, where, like, maybe I would, like, write about films. Gotcha. But, and, and while I have done that, it, like, never really completely satisfied me, because I wanted to tell a story, I wanted to create a narrative. And two things happened in college that kind of, like, firmly cemented, although horror was always part of my DNA, uh, that, no, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, I had a writing class, uh, no, uh, a modernism class, and we were reading Virginia Woolf's to the Lighthouse, which is... Where t- did you go to this? Uh, I went to Kent State University in Ohio. Okay, yeah. Uh, and to me, it was a terribly boring book uh, about a woman who spends... Two hundred pages, thinking about going to a lighthouse that she can see, but she never actually goes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I read it, and you remember more about it. Than uh, it. Yeah. And uh, I had this professor who it was like her favorite thing, and like you know, this was like she had spent a whole career writing writing blah 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 about to the lighthouse. And in one class, I had offered a, a, an opinion about the book. She asked a question. I raised my hand. Blah blah blah. blah whatever happens in literature classes. And she said to me, "Well." you like Stephen King, so what do you know? (laughs) And in that moment, uh, I kind of was like, okay, so here's the deal, though. Stephen King manages to do for millions of people what you struggle to get a classroom of 20 to do, and that's read a book. So let's maybe take a step back and examine who, who is affecting more individuals. And it was sort of that academic snobbery that really kind of. Did uh,
3: she
0: say? Th- did did you say that back to her in class? Oh yeah, I what wasn't. Did, I wasn't necessarily
2: the English department's favorite person. What did uh, she say? Was she just? Oh, like she, huff had, and puff? she hated me. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah, she she also very much did not want me to get my master's degree because of that uh, interaction. Um, that but so I. Uh, I just I remember thinking, you know, there's a reason mm-hmm. popular material is popular, it connects with people mm-hmm. on a massive scale. And I know that sometimes it has to do with who has the money and who promotes the things, but there are things that persist because of content. And I always thought I would rather something I create not be accepted by the academic elite, but like touch people in in that way, than like sit in a room and think I'm better than, you never think you're better than your audience. That's the, the yes. first mistake that anybody makes. Because, you know, maybe you, you have more information than your audience, but if you can't communicate it to them, then you're not doing your job as a creator.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: yeah. uh, that to me is, is, is a crucial relationship that, that you have. And when, when she tried to make my love of a specific author, someone who made reading very important to me, a, a negative, Yeah, I, I in that moment decided I'm, I never want to be that person. Uh, And I won't support a system that does. And I had a writing class where similarly, um, the professor had said he didn't like genre material. And so I just I wrote like a 60 page zombie story where I just killed everybody because I was like, fuck you. And uh, I still have a degree. So thanks, Kent State. (laughs) Did
1: you stay there and get your master's there, too?
2: I sure did. I mean, I had people in the department who liked me enough that were like, we want him to stay. I think they saw that I was a pain in the ass, but like in a fun way, I guess. Yeah, totally. Uh, I think that's so crazy for them to encourage that. that. I mean, you know, because there's a lot of
1: different ways that you can go, you know, in your career. And one of the things I always was kind of mystified by with professors was like, they didn't seem to have an idea about how to guide you professionally. Like... They, they would just say well you should you know get your you know masters get your doctor to be a professor and that's, right but if, if someone can see like oh well you're interested in this and let's encourage this but there's a lot of things you could go out and do in the world right outside of academia
2: well you know and- with your talent and, and you know for writing, you know. And the truth is, like, both of my parents are, are uh, doctors of education, and they both have been uh, professors and educators at different points in their career. And I do truly believe that a good teacher, there is nothing better, like someone who can guide you and help you. But what a lot of them don't realize uh, that you know, some of the, the, the mistake that some of the professors I had made was you need to help guide people not control people. So yes, that's, that's exactly case. how
0: I felt yeah. in grad school. I thought my best teachers were the ones that tried to lift up the natural things that I was good at and I yeah. wanted to do. And the ones that I really don't think did a good job were the ones who tried to say, you need to change and you need to yeah. perform in this manner because that's what an actor is. And it's like, sure. it, it, and a lot of those, were traumatizing events for me as a performer that i've had sense uh, to undo yeah look actually i need to really do what's me and i'm not i don't need to be worried so much about conforming and getting academia and elites to accept me right and And there's this you know
1: there's a serious and approach to genre you know, material. You can approach it, you know, in a very academic way right. and analyze it in a sophisticated way. Of know, course. Yeah. So there, like, I, I think don't know when why you, anyone would kind of like. I think when you evaluate
0: art, too, you need to be evaluating the author's intent. And mm-hmm. so, if Stephen King's atten- uh, you know intent is to make the books that he makes, then you really have to be adjudicating them in that way and not in your own kind of predisposition. Pre predisposed shooting. position on <laughs> what you think good literature is. Well, yeah, it's, yeah. it's yeah. also
2: just a lazy interpretation because basically it's the fact that he was popular. They, you know, I remember the term yeah. "supermarket author" being thrown around a lot. But mm-hmm. you know, the truth is, well, there's been, I think, a critical
1: reassessment of Stephen King. Absolutely. You know, he's not like a punchline the way that she was using it.
2: No, it's true, and I think the thing about Stephen King that is like truly significant is he is a definitive author of Americana. Like it's not even the monsters in the, in the, the horror aspect. It's that he understands small town America in ways that people like Flannery O'Connor or Ernest Hemingway, we're going to look back at Stephen King, what will happen? And it happens because I was in grad school when Kurt Vonnegut died. The day before he was just like a wacky grandpa who like no one took seriously. And then the next day you know, if he's yeah. like the most important person ever, and it's going to happen again. And, and so, Stephen yeah. King
1: wrote stuff like *Stand by Me*, which right. you know, which not horror, but like beautifully
2: the, evoking small town. You know, America. or in the loss of innocence, children. The, yeah, I, that thing. That's what it is about. It's that the, it isn't about a clown in the sewer. It's about that moment in our childhood where we all stop being kids. I mean, and you can see it throughout. Like, even if you just saw the movie, each of the children have. I think where, it's like, Bev is being molested by her dad. That kills your innocence pretty damn fast. Mm-hmm. Or it's more like, you know, uh, mm. just cons- the, the idea that Stan is getting bar mitzvah. That's the rite of passage into adulthood. Each of them have yeah. a moment in that movie where they're not kids anymore, and that's what that's about. Yeah. And well, he just... Did you
0: like the, the new movie? I thought it was great. I yeah, mean... it was really good, too.
2: Because, again, it, like, it reminded me of, like, when I was a kid, right? Like, I, you know, riding my bike in, like, the summer mm-hmm. that you would have, and when we fought that clown no I'm kidding <laughs> <laughs> the sewers yeah the sewer time <laughs> oh that's funny
1: so you grew up in new mexico
2: no i was born in new mexico and what happened was uh we did move around a lot uh which i don't regret i love my life experience uh and you know as i said my parents are both educators and i do believe uh that that uh, good teachers and good educators are like the best gift in the world uh and my mom and dad props you know when i get a chance because i rarely ever get to talk about them on my show uh in the 70s when they got married my dad had read an article about how uh education on Native American reservations was just like very below par because the government didn't care. And so Absolutely. he and my mom packed up uh, the car and they moved to a Navajo reservation in Arizona and that's where he became a school administrator and he wrote about, you know, fixing schools and helping students there. And that's where they like ever since then, both of them throughout the course of their careers have always been trying to do things to help people get better educations. So he was a big proponent of online education when, uh, when people were like people People can't learn on the internet, but he's like, but what about kids with anxiety? What about kids who are getting bullied? Yeah, totally. my mom is a professor, uh, was a professor for a long time who helped teachers become better teachers, but because of that, we did move a lot. Like, so what there was like a school people. district. Well, I'd did. Like you have siblings? So. No, I'm an only child, only which child. helps the moving a lot. Our dogs, yeah, our totally. dogs were the ones who like got to like experience the most. Uh, I was, <laughs> um, but we, I was born in Mexico, we lived in Colorado and Arizona, and then, uh, for like most of like my Junior high, high school, I was in uh, Western Pennsylvania. And then I went to college in Ohio and ended up
1: in That is really inspiring gotcha. and rare that, you know, just, like, they read about something it's like, oh, we've got to go do something about this. Let's make yeah. the world better. For real. I mean, that's really It's cool. hard for me to
0: pick up garbage that I walk by on the street. I'm <laughs> lazy.
1: God, I... You're now making the yeah. world a better place, Nathan. <laughs> One podcast <laughs> at a time. One podcast at a time. <laughs> what are you doing to make? The I mean, world I honestly better? frequently feel bad because
2: it used to be if you would Google our last name, you'd like occasionally find my dad's like old education articles, and now it's me and it's just, like monsters and violence and gay stuff. Oh, sure <laughs> like, but they love it all, honestly. They yeah. are oh, they like must supportive. be really happy.
0: So they were pretty supportive yeah. when you came out and stuff, and with the whole gay thing. Yeah,
2: I think that I was like more shaken up about telling them. Like it, it was, you know, it was a process like my mom it was like the first one I told and then I told my dad later and you know I think that people forget when they come out that you take so much time mentally preparing yourself you have to let the people that you tell have a little bit of time to process yes. as well. Yeah. yeah and so like you know there was definitely a processing time it wasn't bad but like I think that like by the time you come out you're like I just want everybody to accept me now and <laughs> uh, it, it does
0: not I was like I it. want everyone to accept
2: me now yeah. <laughs> but no it's great they've been supportive it's so funny like the things that I think that um I, I have these moments where like uh, Peaches Christ is a very good friend of mine and we've collaborated a lot and I was on tour with Peaches Christ when she made her movie in 2010 and uh All About
0: Evil yes so funny our last podcast uh guest said it was one of his favorite movies
2: that movie was the whole of my 2010 uh and we, didn't Steve say that do you remember? Um,
0: yeah. Jesus Christ came up and he said, watch that movie. Oh, it's great. So now I have to watch it because it's two in a row. So 2010. Yeah, 2010. You, you, you were already living in LA? Uh,
2: not yet. I was still in the Pittsburgh area. I made my first feature while living in Pittsburgh, uh, and it was sort of one of those things I had started working on movies enough that I had to make the choice of, do I just do like regional films and this mm-hmm. is like all my career will be, or do I take the next step and that's why I moved here? What was your first feature? Uh it was this feature that I worked on with two uh g- great collaborators called Tales of Poe. It's an anthology film that's three modern day adaptations of Edgar Allan Poe stories. Whoa, and I, that's super uh cool. is that in the public domain? Is it available? His work is in the public domain, yes. Oh. So you didn't domain. have to pay like the Poe estate to No, do that. no. Uh, and it was uh, Bart Mastronardi, Alan Ro uh, and uh, myself, we each wrote th- uh one one of the three stories. Uh Bart wrote and directed, uh, The Pit and the Pendulum, which, no, that's a lie, that story's not even in the movie, uh, he wrote The, tel- <laughs> he wrote the Telltale Heart, uh, and directed The Telltale Heart, oh, which I is the love first that story. story. I love um, that And the Simpsons
0: version is great, too. Oh,
2: yeah, the Simpsons version is fantastic. Uh, <laughs> The Cask of Amontillado is the middle story, and it was written and directed by Alan Ro Kelly, uh, and then the last story, uh, was an adaptation of a poem he wrote called Dreams that I, uh adapted and Bart directed and uh it did very well on the festival circus circuit for us uh I'm I, I'm so proud of that movie it took us four years to make it uh wow so
0: you were did uh were you involved in producing and writing did you direct any of it
2: I did not I hadn't I only recently started directing um but Bart has been a, cl- a creative collaborator for a long time we worked together a lot we did uh, Bart Allen and I recently reunited a, a, about two years ago to do uh a biopic on montgomery clift that was directed by one of his relatives billy clift uh, and um that's been made that's been made it played the festival circuit uh two years ago uh i don't really know what the, the current fate of that is that happens sometimes sure um, was uh, that you know. the first
0: film that you'd taken to festival the poe yeah
2: poe poe played i think something like 27 festivals worldwide wow. Uh, it had a great. Did cast. you go to a bunch of them? I, I did. We had the premiere here. It was at the Egyptian. Cool. Uh, it played. Uh, it's it's played in some like really wild places. I know it played in London, and uh, I want to say I'm trying to think the weirdest place to me that it frequently plays there's this place in iowa that does this midnight grindhouse series and they've played it three or four times they really like it there for some mm-hmm. reason uh when which i'm very grateful here
1: was it like Screamfest fest or um...
2: uh it played here at uh well no we had we just had the world premiere here at the egyptian and then i think it played Shriekfest um is Shriekfest the la horror film festival yes gotcha uh when's that probably October I believe or late oh, September oh that makes right? sense are
0: they usually the horrors in the fall yeah
2: well yeah. no throughout the year um, there are different horror film festivals all throughout like uh, you know it's just kind of you could do a whole festival year if you wanted to right um, right 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 but yeah I, I, Tales of Poe was definitely a very special movie to me uh, especially because I grew up watching horror movies and our cast was great we had uh, in my story alone, we had Adrian King, who is the survivor of the original Friday the 13th, uh, Amy Steele, who is the lead girl of Friday the 13th Part 2, Caroline Williams from Texas Chainsaw 2, um, throughout the movie, the cowboy from The Village People, Randy Jones is in our movie. Uh, it's it's <laughs> That's uh, amazing. a wild and unruly little film. Um, I hope we did Edgar Allan Poe, proud. But
0: How did yeah. you get all of the budget and everything to
2: do all that? That movie was privately financed uh we had a uh, individual investor from the state of indiana who was a cpa who put up a lot of the money because mm, he nice. just loved horror movies and wanted to be involved that is a rare thing that does not happen often yeah, so yeah it's a, totally. it a real gift uh it did help that like we had all of those amazing people involved in the film Right, uh, so did you
0: did you get them first and then kind of like, look, we have these people with this movie interested? Or?
2: I mean, I don't want to talk out of turn because some of the production I didn't handle, but I do remember, uh, I distinctly remember some of the casting moments. Uh, they did this big uh, Friday the 13th franchise reunion at some hotel in Baltimore. It was like a convention. Mm-hmm. And like the entire like living cast, like of the entire Friday the 13th, oh, wow. they, they were there. And we had been in touch with Adrian King and uh, Bart and I drove to Baltimore from New York you know, to give her the script. And uh, she was like, I'm in. And we had lunch, and she brought Amy Steele from part two to lunch with us. And Amy, uh, we were like, well, you should be the narrator. And she was like, okay, cool. And then she read the script, and she's like, well, I haven't been in a movie in 20 years, and if I'm going to come back and do this, like, it better be like great. <laughs> so I was like, okay, hang on. And I went back and like created a whole new character for her, which ended Amazing. up being, like, one of the, like, more popular characters of the film, so, uh, <laughs> that, I, I, distinctly remember when we got, the, some of the, the name actors involved, but, um, and as far as, like, when the actual financing was secured, I don't really recall. So. Totally.
0: So then, that's how you, so how did that get, that get you to San Francisco to work with Peaches? Were you, you did that film in Western Pennsylvania?
2: Well, that film was actually shot in New York City, but I was living in Western PA, oh, and I would goodness. just jump right. over to New York while mm-hmm. it was being made. Cause that's actually a pretty easy, it would be like driving to San Francisco from here, from Pittsburgh to, uh, New York City by car or bus is like seven hours. Oh, that's still a little bit yeah. of a track, but you um, made it happen. But by plane, it was an hour. So it's right. just like, it would depend on like what I could afford that, you know, that moment while we were shooting. Totally. Cause again, it was over the, a span of some time. Right. Um... Peaches was sort of an individual and uh, in parallel story that doesn't have a lot to do with Tales of Poe. Um, I, because of my love of USA Up All Night, which I referenced earlier on the show, <laughs> um, it all stems from there. Yeah, it really does. Uh, it, one of the things I loved about Up All Night was the idea of Ronda Shearer hosting, because there was this thing where, even if it felt scary, you kind of, like, had a buddy who was mm-hmm. watching the show with you, and she would pop in and be like, isn't this dumb? And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and like, Elvira did very much the same thing, or Joe Bob Briggs in uh, Monster Vision on TNT, mm-hmm. and, and what was really interesting is... Uh, at one point in our country, when everything was local network affiliates and there wasn't massive cable, every network had its kind of Their own, own host, variation right. of a late night horror host, and it was usually just the weather guy in like some grease paint and a cape or whatever. But like they would they would get <laughs> like Doctor so coffee guy or you know uh, <laughs> stuff, stuff, stuff like that. And um, at one point, I really thought that I was going to write a book about the history of late night horror hosts, and I started trying to interview people. And I did connect with Rhonda Shearer and I interviewed her and I interviewed a few people. And um, one of the things that I wanted to do was uh, find out what like the natural progression of that was. And this is probably like 2006 or seven. And so I like was looking up modern late night horror hosts and I found this kind of like Geocities-esque webpage for this drag queen (laughs) in San Francisco who was doing a show called Midnight Mass. And it did basically the Rocky Horror Treatment But for other movies, like, this week we're going to show John Waters' Desperate Living and we're having, like, a filth contest and the most filthiest person wins or whatever. Totally. And uh, she started progressing into doing these, like, kind of, like, stage show homages of, of the movies and it was, like, things like... Flash Gordon, but then the stage show would be called Fish Gordon about two lesbians saving the galaxy. <laughs> or uh, Barbarella with Barbarella Barella and things. It was just like, and I remember being like, this is so bizarre and yeah. weird. And I wrote to her and I was like, I'm writing this book and I want to talk to you. And um, I also think your website could like be cooler and I want to help out with that. And yeah, for sure. uh, she called me and we were supposed to talk for the book. And we ended up talking for like three hours. And it was like very clear that we were just kindred spirits. We liked all the same things. We grew up with a lot of the same references. And Joshua, which is Peach's real name, like he just just kind of felt like instant friendship. And we stayed in touch. Uh, And then when he made All About Evil, I flew out to San Francisco for the premiere. And the weekend of the premiere, we sort of hatched a scheme that I would travel on the road because Peach has decided to take the Midnight mass experience uh of like what they did with the live shows in san francisco and do it with all about evil in every city that the movie played where they would do like a little stage show with peaches and then maybe a member of the cast if a member of the cast wasn't available they'd get in touch with like local drag performers or smart it's a, a great little
0: idea and especially with a movie that you're cross-promoting
2: exactly and it really uh was such an experience and we would go from city to city and uh, you know my gig would would change based on who was available or whatever. So I was, the movie was already
1: made, but you were producing these events.
2: Well, I didn't I didn't necessarily produce them in the way that like a producer would, but I did participate. Like uh, you were helping her put on these events. Yeah, sometimes you know, and like I said, sometimes it would be as simple as I would be there helping them sell the t-shirts afterwards because there was no one mm-hmm. to do that. Or one show. Uh, in Baltimore and Washington D.C., I was a Frankenstein monster in the show who like danced. <laughs> because, <laughs> I mean, and my my real job on it, like, and again, not as a producer, I was I was a, a writer. I was like her tasked writer who travel logs the whole thing. And so my my part of the journey is I would just keep track of everything that happened, and we wrote this travel log that would go live on peacheschrist.com. And it sort of was in a way a, a really cool um, experience because. I got to be there for all of this, but it also helped Peaches kind of like memorialize this moment that she didn't necessarily always have time to appreciate in the moment because everything was always so hectic and crazy. Sure, Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I I, I got a lot of experience on that journey and I will say that a lot of things that happened to me uh, in my career certainly helped, that helped open doors. It was sort of like the simultaneous punch of Tales of Poe and then people being like, wait, I read your thing about Peaches Christ, mm-hmm. blah, blah. And um, Peaches is just very special person uh, to me, and we work together. We have collaborated uh, uh, to do the 25th anniversary of Vegas in Space for Frameline Film Festival. Uh, we're writing a movie together now. Uh, you know, it would be crazy. Is it p- a horror genre? It is a horror movie musical. Um, <laughs> that sounds yeah. awesome. Didn't
1: she just do um, Death Becomes Her?
2: Yeah, she she did uh, Drag Becomes Her as a stage drag show. Drag Becomes Her here yeah. at uh, here in L.A., but she also did it in Portland and Seattle. Uh, it was a live show with her, Jinx Fonsoon, Ben De La Creme, uh, and then like rotating cast members depending where she oh, was. that sounds like it's amazing. getting a little bit
1: le- little bit more mainstream, you know, at least with, with that. Yeah, I mean, there's a horror element to that, yes. but. Um, but not quite as um, alternative as and uh, obscure as some of the earlier stuff.
2: Sure, I mean in terms of like the content that she's parroting, but I do think that I heard it was.
1: Hilarious! Oh,
2: I think it was a, a huge achievement. Like I, you know, I, I I wish
1: I had seen it. I kind of wasn't aware of it until it was happening. I love that movie. And um, I love all of those drag queens. Yeah, they're so funny.
2: Her her parody writing is so on point. Uh, she, you know, she's just you know lightning in a bottle, an amazing individual. I uh, what I think is really interesting though is like the the idea of it becoming mainstream. And I'll actually just quote Peaches on this because when uh, Peaches came and did Dead for Filth, we talked about this idea about how drag race the argument is that it's becoming mainstream because there are drag queens on the TV. I think it's becoming more visible, but it still will never be mainstream. Not in the way that we consider mainstream because, like, you take any of those queens on that show and drop them in Omaha, Nebraska, and we'll see how mainstream it actually is, you know? yeah, But, uh, It's not... No, it's not yeah, mainstream, but that. it's bending the mainstream right. a little
1: bit. And it's I, I love, mainstream. You know, I love what, what RuPaul said once, you know, on the show, and she's, you know, talking about... She's like, you know... I. I'm a, I'm a marketing motherfucking genius, right. you know, because I've been selling, you know, like subversive drag to the masses for right. years, and now we're doing this, you know, and that's true. I mean, you really got so to hand it I remember Paul. the first
0: time I was a kid when I saw RuPaul's TV show on <laughs> right. TV, and I was like, what is this? I had never seen anything like that. And I remember just her interviewing people, and I was like, "This
1: is a guy dressed as a girl. What's going on? I don't even know." You know, and it can become bigger, and it can move from Logo to VH1, and RuPaul can get a star on the Hollywood, you know, Walk of Fame. But that doesn't mean that drag is all of a sudden not subversive. No, and of course, all of a sudden that drag isn't is mainstream.
2: I think that's the exciting thing about counterculture, though, too, right? Like as it becomes visible, it changes. I mean, the 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 idea that Punk rock began in basements and then the Ramones, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, the Ramones are still punk, but like the idea that they became like a a, a charting band doesn't take the edge out. It just changes how it's visible, I think.
1: Yeah. And then and then it has but then it seeps into other aspects of the culture, too. And it has
2: influence
1: on things that are more mainstream.
2: No, and what I really think is fun is the idea that, like, there is something to me that's always punk rock about drag, but, like, it used to be something that felt sort of, not sort of, it felt subversive. There was, like, there was a, uh, a, a, a underground to it. And then I'll watch E! and Andrew Garfield will be like Miss Vanjie and I'm like why is fucking Spider-Man <laughs> talking about Drag Race and it's like but it's amazing like I love that so
1: well I mean so, uh, uh, Gavin yeah, totally. Newsom you know is standing next to RuPaul saying Miss Vanjie yeah uh, in a YouTube endorsement right now that so. is fairly mainstream <laughs> that, is, that is pretty mainstream <laughs> well Miss Vanjie is the turning point Miss Vanjie she primaries are just coming up
2: has made it all mainstream. Do you vote? I do vote. You vote in the primary? I, you should better vote in the primaries. I, I,
0: I vote online, or mail in. Oh, you uh, mailed in. Uh, you cannot vote online, everybody. If you no. think you can, you're wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> Whatever you think you're doing, it's not voting. I get permanent mail in voters, so I, I just do it at home.
2: No, I'm such a grandpa. I still like to go to the poll. I like to get my sticker. I mean, I know they give you one in the mail if you do it, but like I. I do too. I like the experience. Yeah. Because I feel like there's something like civic about it yeah speaking of like the it, americana it of stephen king's america <laughs> i'm just of, like i like to like go and see like you know the people who are there on their lunch break and they you know they're that they are turning out to like make a difference i grew up in
0: washington state and by the time i had turned 18 they'd already made it a permanent by mail state so there were no polling places when i turned 18 what interesting. so you
1: can't go vote at a poll in washington
0: Nope, it's only mail in. I can't believe but that their their voter turnout is. I think you must higher. be misinformed. That can't I, be true. I I lived in Washington for many years.
1: What? I voted in I Washington. I've never for, heard that anywhere was there are multiple
0: by mail only states. And what? they actually have the highest turnout rate in the country. That's so interesting. And, uh, but I was How
1: do I not know this? I worked in politics. Yeah, when That's I lived in amazing.
0: Chicago, I voted by mail to Washington and then I moved here. And I was like, ah, give me the mail. But I right. have, you can't actually go in even if you get the mail and do it by going in. So I have gone in once and voted well, so just the, to get the experience. Yourself.
1: Did, you, did you do that in Washington? I did it in California once oh. I became
0: registered in California. Oh, I see. But I am a mail-in voter here, but I was like, let me just go do the polling once because I've never been. right. Okay. But I like it at home because I can research, and I can take right. my time, and sometimes there's things on there that's, like, throw you for a loop.
2: My yeah. favorite are the guides that California... Well, I mean, I know every state sends you, but they, mm-hmm. like, send you the guide with all the people who are running, and then you read, like, their personal statements, and some people, I'm like, did you read what you wrote? They yeah. have to really <laughs> fight totally. for what they
1: get to say. They don't always get to say what they want. Yeah, because someone, yeah. like...
2: I mean, there was one in the current guide, and of course, like, I'm going to paraphrase because I don't remember nor have it in front of me, but, like, the guy was just, like we're going to stop these baby-killing terrorists or whatever it was. Oh my was God, like, there's somebody in the... Yeah, I mean, he, like, straight up, he, like he's not getting, like... But he's, like, 15 people deep. Right, like, he's, like, right, 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 probably has no chance, and I hope he has no chance, but... Uh,
0: do did, you do the research
2: before? Oh, yeah, always. I and mean, I, do you do a little, like... What, do you guys bring in a little
1: piece of paper with all of your choices? Like, how do you remember which judge you're going to vote for? Um, I, usually I'll print something out. Yeah. Like, someone will have sent me something, you know, because they've researched the judges, maybe, and they're like, you know, go, this is the person for that, you know, usually some lawyer or someone that I know, well, I've done that. Or, so I usually, yeah, you go in with, like, material, and you're like, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm actually way behind in, in the primary, like, I hope there's not a lot of... There are a that. fair amount of things. I just recently looked yeah. through the packet. It's kind of a thick one this year. It Oof. is. All right, well, I've got to look into it. Oh, we got to turn America around. <laughs> we do, we do, we do. There's so, a couple other yeah. things I wanted to touch on in your bio. Okay. Um, you wrote a movie called A Christmas in Vermont. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I mean, oh, that doesn't sound horror with, at all. With uh, Chevy Chase. Yes. And seemingly, it was what drove him to go to rehab. No, I mean... <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm kidding about that, but all the like you look on IMDb, and the only stories about it are he went to rehab immediately after having shot that.
2: Yeah, well, what was really funny? I mean, he. <laughs> here's the thing about a, like a lot of the TV Christmas movies that we do. Is there was a, this a Hallmark one? Or? This was made for Ion. Uh, okay.
0: But what Ion? I don't know if I know them. What's Ion?
1: It's like a. It's a network, um, and it's kind of it came together as a conglomerate of a bunch of independent stations yeah gotcha anyway and, sorry.
2: and they frequently um, they do a lot of original uh, TV movie content and then sometimes movies that are created for Lifetime or created for ION they'll do like cross network stuff sure yeah, so it's yeah, like, yeah but a Christmas in Vermont was a, uh, an ION uh, original premiere film uh, that I wrote starring uh, Chevy Chase and uh, <laughs> Howard Hesseman from WKRP in Cincinnati that is so yeah. exciting um, that you're having
0: that like, you write these movies and then they're all on TV. I think that is so cool. It
2: is fun. You know, honestly, I really enjoy those kinds... Of, I enjoy those movies, and I've talked a lot about sort of how you can write horror movies, and you can write you know, these family Christmas films, and, and be the same person. Uh, and yeah, if, and sometimes if, those are do you, horror. Do you or, know Lee
1: Friedlander? I don't know that I do. She directs those kinds of movies, but... I you know what I, I like about done them one together.
2: is there's a there's a subculture to them in a very similar way that there's a horror movie subculture. Yeah, I mean yeah. I view them kind of in like uh, and I've said this in interviews before. In their way, they're also cult films. It's just the expectations. Well, I mean, and
1: there. she came from writing and directing lesbian movies. You know that so that played at Outfest, like Go Fish or you know whatever. And... So
2: many people who work in the TV movie space are often genre directors or genre writers because we not only. Uh, are interested in telling different kinds of stories but like we also tend to know how to make a movie to a budget scale Mm, and so like for example uh, i think that's a huge strength of hers like sam Irvin, who i've worked with on a number of the christmas movies he's the guy who directed every episode of dante's cove and uh totally david dakota uh does a lot of those and he notoriously made a lot of like blockbuster horror movies frequently homoerotic themes and uh and it is, Ron Oliver, who directed Prom Night 2, directs a lot of Christmas movies, so it's, it's a thing. So um, with a
0: TV movie, are you getting contracted and then you do it and you kind of send it in? Or? Uh,
2: well, it depends on the movie. So there are different, you know, it depends on the network I'm working with, it depends on the production house I'm working with. Mm-hmm. Uh, the very first one I ever wrote was one called A Christmas Reunion with Denise Richards, and it's about a bakery. And that one, they kind of approached me and they were like, we want you to do a movie about a Christmas cookie contest. And so they came with the idea, but okay. then it was sort of so you like, have like, a, yeah. like a little bit it, of Yeah, idea. they right. usually
1: have something they want right. to hit. Some
2: but because I've been in the system long enough and I've written enough uh, movies that have, have done well for these networks, I also have the autonomy that I didn't have when I was starting, where I can go in and say, "Well, what if we do this movie about two talk show hosts who are trying to get the same job, and it's going to be decided on Christmas Day?" Which was the basis for a movie that I created uh, called "Broadcasting Christmas" with Melissa Joan Hart. Uh and, oh, and they bought that. Sabrina. Yeah. Oh my God, cool! Um, That's amazing. But uh, <laughs> I grew up
0: with Melissa Joan
2: Hart. She's super awesome. Um, but yeah, so Christmas in Vermont. The thing about it is, is that movie, uh, I am very fond of, uh, because it's it's very warm and cozy movie, uh, and I, I, I had a great time with that one. Uh, Chevy Chase shot, and then there was like an actual, a very long gap between the shoot and the actual release of the movie, because the movie was shot right after Christmas one year to utilize the snow in an area of the country, but then it wasn't aired until Christmas of the next year. Right. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, where was it shot? It was actually shot in Buffalo. It was not shot in for a month. Uh, yeah. They usually
1: the, shoot them in Canada where there's more snow
2: all the um, time. But yeah, yeah, Vancouver. Uh, the, most of the movies are usually shot in Utah, Vancouver, uh, Connecticut, Buffalo, or sometimes here. But like usually, if it's here, it's always like, you know, Aloha Christmas and it's sunny or whatever. <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, the Chevy chase story that you're referring to yeah we got a lot of free press out of that because they would you know mr chase will be next appearing in but that was so far after the fact of shooting yeah. um but it was funny like my google alerts were going crazy i only meant because
1: it's the only thing that shows up in yeah. little stories about do them. you have much in that process
0: after the script has been submitted i mean are you rewriting or are you on set at all or is it just kind of like um
2: i frequently um I well, I'm usually there until the final draft of the the script is written. So Mm -hmm. I go through most of the drafts, and I, you know, I'm a very meticulous writer. I Actually, just finished writing. uh, I didn't a a movie that I wrote finished shooting. That's a disaster movie uh, that was made by Asylum. The guys who produced Sharknado produced it. Uh, And oh, I just watched one of their films. My friend was in it. It was like a Tomb Raider spoof. Oh yeah, Tomb Invaders Yeah, I I saw the poster for it while I was at their Mm -hmm. office. and that one, I did every version of the script, and I, um, I keep color-coded, this is, I'm such a nerd, I do color-coded versions of my scripts, so I know everything that's changed from the first draft to, like, you know, draft six. Wow. Um, and that's a very
1: line producery uh, approach to your...
2: Well, it's it's weird to say, but like these are create, you know, even if it's a log line that's brought to me, like create a movie about a Christmas cookie contest, mm-hmm. that's still one sentence that I have to create 90 minutes of, which means I create a world and I create people. Uh, and yeah, the cookies yeah, could come to yeah. life
0: for all you could just write it into happening. And,
2: and the thing about writing movies is it's not a small experience, you spend a lot of time doing it. And oh, yeah. so you have to really want to, to tell the story. And you live with those characters and you live with the situation for so long that I kind of, I color code them because I want to remember who they were and who they became. They're, and they're
1: stories like stories yeah. almost. Yeah, but you, you know, in those, in those kinds of things, you're inevitably, you're going to get a lot of notes and then there's yeah. going to be a lot of reasons, like, especially as they get, you know, into pre-production, like. Oh, we thought we could shoot this in a church, but as it turns out, it needs to be somewhere else. or right, right. cookies you know, can't come like, to life anymore. Anyway. Or like we need to turn this. we need to combine these two scenes into whatever And, and that
2: happens you but know. like luckily, I, they usually kind of like we'll, we'll get in touch with Vermont I, interestingly enough is a movie where uh, it had been primarily shot, but then there were some issues. With, with some, uh, like, the running time of the movie. And I had already been in production uh, for Broadcasting Christmas, the initial version that I wrote, I wrote before it was uh, handed off to Topher Payne, who wrote the final version of it. Uh, I was at Comic-Con when they called me and asked me to write additional scenes for Vermont. It had been like a year since I had touched that script. We like, were you like, what is this again? It takes a second to kind of get back into like, who are these people? But I sat in my, I remember I was the day that I did my queer horror panel a couple years ago and I just sat in my hotel room and I wrote a new scene and it ultimately was a scene with Morgan Fairchild in the movie. And that helped. Like, mm. I knew that she was going to be in it and that was like super cool. I was yeah. like, oh my God, Morgan yeah. Fairchild. So, fun. Um, yeah. Do you write every day? I do write every day. Uh, and there is sort of like contention amongst different writers of whether that's something that you need to actually do or not. And so everyone's process is different. Some people need days off and they should. Uh, but I, uh, I do write every day. Um,
0: do you have a ritual? Like, do you get up and write, write in the, right away or uh-huh. do you just get to it when you can?
2: Or? I get to it when I can. Cause I certainly, I will say that almost every movie I've ever written has, uh, I've usually wrote, written the final line. Uh, around three or four in the morning i almost always finish scripts late at night Mm -hmm. like uh and i don't know what that is it just always happens and then i invariably will like have a like vodka soda afterwards so well it's it's a creative time it's a creative time (laughs) yeah Yeah.
1: i I get that you know i I tend to finish things late too and so you've also directed um something called he drinks
2: that, what is that? Oh my god, I get to talk about He Drinks. I don't think I've ever talked about He Drinks in an uh, interview before. Ugh, exclusive!
1: Uh, because it sounds like a, it's a short film. It is. It sounds like a horror romance thing, maybe. Yes, so... Based on
2: Dracula? Is it not? No, on? but I'm a big Dracula nerd. And that's like, if you want to derail this whole conversation, we could go there, but we won't. Um, <laughs> he's my favorite. Uh, <laughs> I, so, He Drinks is a script that... Um, There's this thing that a lot of writers have called drawer scripts, and what that means is like when you write every day, obviously Mm -hmm. not everything you write gets made or gets published or whatever, but sometimes the idea or the content is good enough that you put it away, so you put it in a drawer, and it just kind of lives there until you have an occasion for it. Sometimes and, in a pitch
1: meeting someone will say, well what what do you have in your drawer?" You yeah. Know, like, yeah
2: And I mean that's that has been the selling point for a, a, you know a few of the holiday movies even that I' like ones that are in pro- production now are movies I pitched ages ago that didn't happen and then I happen to be in with a different company and they're like, what well, what else do you have?" And I'm like, well there's well. Mm, yeah but he drinks was a short that I wrote uh, a number of years ago that is an LGBTQ themed comedy with a horror element to it. That uh, I had initially intended for another director to make because, like, as I said earlier, I wasn't really doing any directing. It was always something I kind of was interested in, but uh, I didn't really, you know, have I don't know the courage or just like you know the wherewithal to try and pursue it. And um, one of the sticking points was the location. I wanted to have like an office that looked like a, a couple's therapist office because most of the story is set there. And I would go around and ask here in LA, and people always wanted to charge, like, exorbitant amounts of money, and since it wasn't a feature film, I didn't want to shell it out for something that was short. Sure, yeah. But people are
1: savvy here. Yeah. So they're like, they know what they can get. So
2: I put it away, and then, you know, what happened was earlier in the year, uh, I was at Reverie doing some things uh, for Dead for Filth, and I had a meeting with the CEO, and he said, well, do you have any, like, shorts that we can acquire? And I said, well, I don't have any shorts that aren't already promised to other companies that exist. I said, but, like, if there's something you want to produce. And they kind of talked about stuff, and they're like, well, what do you got? And, like, I, it, for some reason, that, that story flashed into my brain. And I said, well, if I can use one of the offices at your studio, I was like, I'll make this short. And, like, after some of the festival, I'll just, you know, I'd be happy to have reverie take it because honestly that's a gift the idea that like once usually when short films are done they disappear and so to have a streaming platform for it a place that has a life for it yeah and um i called the guy who was supposed to direct he drinks and i was like guess what he drinks is finally gonna happen and he he was like you know maybe you should direct this one yourself since you've been putting all this work into trying to get it done And I had like that, like a whole twenty-four hours where I was like, "No, I couldn't possibly. That's insane." Me uh, I'm just a writer. And uh, so I did. And you know, I had directed a couple digital uh, comedy sketches for some friends of mine, but this was like sort of the more first cinematic big four uh, jump into that world. Mm -hmm. Uh, And um, it's done, and we're gonna have a world premiere of it this summer at a film festival. Just waiting to give the details on that. Um, amazing. Congratulations. But, uh, thank you. I did a secret sneak preview screening of it at, at Web Fest, and uh, it seemed to go very well. It's great. It was fun because it married kind of like the things that I like. The idea of, of queer cinema with a little bit of horror. Uh, Tiffany Shepes, who plays the couples therapist in it, is an old friend of mine from uh, the world of indie horror. She and I both started like when we were but children, and she is uh, <laughs> amazing. She was just in the 12 Monkeys TV show, and she was in Sharknado 2, and Uh, it was so great to get her to come play for a day and, like, know that I was making a movie kind of with family. And, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so it's fun. I don't know, like, writing will always be my passion, but I definitely enjoy directing and... um because he drinks seem to go well uh there is discussion that i might you know do a feature next year so we'll see very cool oh, great yeah. very cool. That's well congratulations thank you on that oh and-, and i will say that brandon kirby uh to bring it all full circle to the beginning of the conversation <laughs> right. brandon kirby was my assistant director on he drinks and uh he got to do some special effects work for me that he had not known he was going to do until that day. And I told him he had to do it. Uh, (laughs) And so, so I love Brandon and, uh, you know, we, we continue to work together. He's a super great guy. Amazing. I I really like
1: him too. too. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. I uh,
2: had a great time. It was just much
0: fun. Yeah, it was amazing. And, uh, so do you want to plug the stuff that you have? You have Twitter, you have a prolific Twitter account.
2: Uh, Yes, you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Michael Verati. It's M I C H A E L V, is in Victor, A R R A T I. Uh, Dead for Filth, you can listen to on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and wherever podcasts are sold. Uh, (laughs) Also, also, Reverie. Yes, also on Reverie. Uh, And uh, you can follow us on Twitter there at Dead for Filth. Uh, He Drinks will be out. Uh, at film festivals this summer I'm trying to think of what else I need to plug Slay Gardens written by myself and Peaches Christ with music by Jinx Monsoon begin shooting soon keep your eyes open for that Ooh. and uh, yeah all of my other stuff is out in the world I'm always causing trouble find me if you want <laughs> <laughs> perfect and all if right. you made it this far
0: in our podcast you probably already followed us But tell your friends, subscribe, like, share. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Bye. Bye.